Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John, the fifth chapter. We pick up where we left off last week, having completed our study of John chapter 4. Now we launch in to John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 together today. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to read in whatever version you might have with you today. John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well, and took up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who has healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I wonder how your misery index is today. It's been hot in El Paso, hasn't it? But I'm not talking about that kind of misery. I'm talking about what experts who talk about the misery factor say. It's the gap between your expectations and your reality. Is there a gap between what you expect of God and others and your reality? Does it seem like you're being neglected by God? Is it possible that God has forgotten you? Are you a person who is suffering greatly, either physically or emotionally or relationally or any number of other ways? And the reality is life's miserable for you. In this passage of Scripture, we see a study in contrasts. A contrast between a man of misery, an unnamed man, this man who had been ill with a certain sickness for 38 years. I can't even imagine that. 
Think of what you were doing 38 years ago. I asked that question last night, and less than half the people had even been alive for 38 years who were here last night. But this crowd is full of people who can remember, hopefully can remember, 38 years ago. 38 years ago, I was the pastor of Vista Hills Baptist Church here in El Paso. It was my first church. It was a great experience for me. I was the first pastor of the church. And it was one of those things that I had really nothing to compare it to. And some of those people had nothing to compare me to. That made for a good relationship between a pastor and a church. It really did. It was a great seven and a half years the Lord gave me in that church. The year before that year, it was 1979, that would be 38 years ago. In 1978, my son came into our lives. That was a great year. I was enjoying being a dad. I was enjoying being a pastor. It was just terrific. I, I had expectations which were being met. My reality and my expectations were almost this close to one another. But 38 years have passed since then. And I have been miserable sometimes along the way. I'm sorry to admit it, but I have been miserable because my expectations have been unmet. And I have consequently become a person at times who has been miserable. There's much for us to learn today about how to close that gap. How instead of being a person who is a person who's miserable, we become people like Jesus, who is the epitome of a person of mercy. In this story, misery meets mercy. And there is a great transformation. I pray today that today would be a day where your misery is met by the man of mercy. And that gap is reduced, if not obliterated, because of your understanding of who he is and what he wants for you. Well, let's talk about the man of misery. As I mentioned, he's unnamed. His misery was real. Can you imagine 38 years of sickness? And this man's sickness had rendered him lame or withered or both. It's agreed by most scholars that this man was a paraplegic. If he were to get somewhere, he either had to crawl to get there, or he had to depend upon someone else to help him get there. In this day and time, in Palestine, the average lifespan of a man, if it was more than 38, it was just barely more than 38 years of age. So, we cannot be too harsh on this man. What we can observe is that duration magnifies misery. This long, drawn-out illness had contributed to this man's misery. Perhaps early in his sickness, when he was brought to the pool of Bethesda, perhaps in those days he had waited with bated breath for the angel of the Lord to come and stir the pool of water in hopes that he would be the first one in and according to tradition would be healed by God in that situation. But episode after episode, visitation after visitation, year after year, there was nothing that was going on 
in his behalf. The physical disability was bad enough to begin with, but it wore on him in the ensuing years. Remember, he's a paraplegic. Mobility was difficult for him. Livelihood was even more difficult for him. He had to stoop to the place of being a beggar or depending upon family members or friends to give him what he needed to be sustained. Social isolation became a problem because of his being a paraplegic. Issues of incontinence were troublesome for him. And people, when they got around him, wouldn't want to stay around him very long unless it was that multitude of people who were his companions in the five porticos of the pool of Bethesda because they too were people who were social outcasts. They were people who felt the scorn of God in their own hearts instead of the love of God in their own hearts and the scorn of their fellow men as well. People didn't like to be around this man. He was a man who had symptoms that were more than physical, I would suggest to you. And this is something that would be symptomatic of anyone who is living out a life of misery, regardless of what form the misery takes. In this particular man's case, and in every miserable person's life, it's the same, that misery is rooted in self-centeredness. Look at verse 7 of the text. The Bible says, in answer to the question that Jesus asks him in verse 6, He said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Do you notice the emphasis upon himself? The quickest way to get miserable, even if you're relatively happy at the moment, is start thinking about yourself. A self-centered person is a person who is destined for misery. And this man, we can't blame him because of his physical condition. We probably wouldn't have lasted as long as he. But we have something in our lives, if we know Jesus, that he did not yet have. We have the living Christ in us. And Jesus, by the Spirit living in us, can give us joy and peace in the middle of joyless and peaceless circumstances. But what we see here is a man who felt sorry for himself. He had what might be described as victimitis. Do any of you have victimitis? Are you always the center of some plot of victimizing you? Do things always come back to you when you think of this? This man was friendless, probably. Look again at verse 7. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And that area was populated, as we've seen, by people who were handicapped, sick. And when the water got stirred up, what were they doing? They were crawling all over each other to be the first one in. They were pushing people aside to get in. It was not a place of great friendship in that area. People are looking out for themselves in that situation. The good news for us is that 
Jesus is our friend if we know Him. If you don't know Christ, understand what Jesus said when He says, Greater love has no one than this, that He lay down His life for His friend. No longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friend, He said. And that phrase, have called, is a tense of the verb, which means when Jesus Christ calls you His friend, He does not renege on that commitment. He is your friend forever. And therefore, when we think about this situation, this man was friendless. There was no friend to put him into the water because it was every person for himself or herself in that situation. That is a picture of a person who is miserable. His self-centeredness shows up in the fact that he blamed other people too. Did you get a hint of that when we read this in verse 7? Read it again. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. He's blaming other people for thinking about themselves while he's thinking about himself. There's nobody to put me in the pool. And then a little later, if we think about what happened when Jesus healed this man, and he was approached by the religious authorities, the group of people who are described as the Jews. And let me stop here just a moment. Some of you have not been with us as we've been studying the Gospel of John. The writer of John uses the phrase, the Jews, almost 70 times. And he rarely uses that term in a favorable light. But, remember, in chapter 4, verse 22, if you want to glance back over to 4.22, what we read. It says, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So, Jesus was not anti-Semitic. He himself is described by John, and rightly so, as being a Jew. And he was saying salvation comes from the Jews. This phrase, the Jews, which is often used by the Apostle John as he writes the Gospel, is a very narrow view of what that could have meant and what it means. It was just a select group of elitist Jewish leaders and rulers. So don't think that Jesus or we have any grounds for being anti-Semitic. There's absolutely no basis for it. But when this man was healed, the Scripture tells us in verse 10, the Jews were saying to him, and by the way, they weren't just saying once, they were saying it over and over and again. They were grilling him. It's like being hotboxed by a couple of FBI agents zeroing zeroing in on you, expert people at trying to get information. They were saying to him, who was cured? It is the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. Do you sense a little nervousness on the part of this man? Well, we probably would have been too. But he blames Jesus. Jesus had just healed him. He didn't even know who it was. He didn't even know the name of Christ. He didn't take the time to ask Jesus. If he was given the time by Jesus to ask the question. So he's blaming the Lord too. Not just the others who were his cohorts in the pool of Bethesda area. So, 
Miserable people are miserable because of real problems, but they're miserable because of their own self-centeredness. Are you miserable today? Well, may I ask you to take a close look at your own heart and your own attitude to see if your misery might be connected to your self-centeredness. I like what Corey Ten Boom, the great Dutch Christian saint, said. She said, if you're unhappy with your lot in life, build a service station on it. Yeah? Instead of being a person who's thinking about yourself, consider other people. Well, let's move from the man of misery to the man of mercy. What a wonderful person Jesus is. Look at verse 1. Let me read along here and make some observations about this man of mercy. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know which one it was. Some say it was Passover, some Pentecost, some dedication. We just don't know which feast it was. But what we do know is Jesus was an observant Jew. Jesus obeyed the law of Moses when it came to going to Jerusalem to celebrate feasts. And regardless of which feast this was, Jesus was there. He went up to Jerusalem. And when the Jews would go up to Jerusalem, and everyone when they went to Jerusalem went up, it was a place that was situated on a promontory, still is to this day, on the mountain, as it were. And you would go up to the worship of the Lord. And as people would go up, they would sing what have, been come, have come to be known as songs of ascent. And Psalm 122 begins this way. Many of you could quote it. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And here he was going up. There's no mention of his apostles no mention of anyone else, it's conceivable that Jesus made this journey alone. And as He's walking alone, He's not alone because He's with the people of God. If Jesus were alive on earth today in the body, He would not miss the opportunity, not because of a legalistic slavishness, but because of His heart to be with His people. Do you know what Jesus says, don't you? Wherever two or three have gathered together in My name, there I am in the midst of them. Where is Jesus Christ today? He's right here with us. If He were, as I mentioned, here in the flesh, He would not miss one opportunity to worship God with the people of God. In verse 2, the Bible says, Now there is in Jerusalem... By the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. There are many opinions about what the name Bethesda means. We know the word baith in Hebrew means house. And the word hesed, I believe, is the word that's suggested in the second part. And that means the covenant love of God, the everlasting love. Sometimes it's simply translated mercy. So the man of mercy goes to the house of mercy where all these sick people are, including this man who's been sick for 38 years. Now understand, there's no mention of Jesus going immediately to the temple when he arrives. That doesn't mean he didn't, but 
likely his first place to want to be and go was to Bethesda, the house of mercy. He did not go to the palace of Herod. He did not go to the praetorium where Pilate resided. Rather, he went to the place that nobody else wanted to go because he went to the people who were miserable, hurting people. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the epitome of the man of mercy as he goes to minister to these people in their anguish in that situation. Let's look at verse 6. We're going to see here that mercy, I'm going to make two comments about mercy and the person of mercy. A person of mercy confronts people in their misery. We're going to see this. Secondly, a person of mercy comforts people in their mercy. I love what I read in a book by Ray Steadman many years ago about the Holy Spirit's responsibility. He said, the Holy Spirit disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Jesus was like that. And He's like that today. Jesus will confront us, and I believe in a sense He's doing that today as He speaks to us through His Word today. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw Him lying there and knew that He had already been a long time in that condition, this knowledge was probably supernatural in nature. He had discernment that was given to him, I believe, by the Spirit of God about this man's condition. He picks one man out of a multitude. We don't know how many people, but a multitude means a bunch of people. And the Scripture says, Jesus said to him, Do you wish to get well? Well, that's kind of a foolish question to ask. Somebody has been sick for 38 years, right? Jesus is described by Himself and by the writers of Scripture as a physician. We have many doctors in the room today. Many doctors who worship the Lord here in this church. I am so grateful for the godly men and women whom God has sent into the medical field. Not just in our church, there are many, but in the Christian church at large. And Jesus, however, is the great physician. Jesus is the ultimate Physician, have any of you ever been really sick before? Some of you have. And in your sickness, when your doctor was diagnosing you or examining you after a diagnosis had been rendered and a prognosis was given and looking after you, perhaps you had a physician who didn't have very good bedside manner. Have you ever had a doctor like that? Well, I like a doctor who has some... Bedside manner. Cares about me, you know, not just my body, but my soul. I like that. But if I had to make a choice between compassion and competence out of a physician, I'm not even going to think about it. I want a doctor who will confront me with my condition, who can help me get a pathway to healing. How about you? Definitely. That's for sure. Jesus combines both confrontation but comfort. But he begins by confronting this man. He is serious in asking the question, do you want to get well? That would suggest that maybe this man had grown accustomed and even come to enjoy his sickness because it relieved him of responsibility. 
he didn't have to go to work. I'm just speculating here. I don't know for sure. But I'm wondering, why would Jesus ask such a question if the man was not struggling, in a sense, uh, with his own illness as far as enjoying it a little bit in the conditions he had grown accustomed to in that situation. But Jesus confronts him. But Jesus doesn't simply confront the individual, not just us as individuals. Thank God Jesus knows his sheep. He says, my sheep, I know my sheep. He knows us by name. Phenomenal that God knows each of us by name and is personally interested in us. But also, Jesus confronts institutions as well. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 9, the last part. The first part of verse 9 says, Immediately the man became well when Jesus told him to rise, take up your pallet and walk. And he took up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. We know the Ten Commandments. The commandment which says, you shall keep the Sabbath day as holy. It was the seventh day of the week, the day of rest. There was to be no work done. In the Mishnah, which is a compilation of traditions of the elders, which was put together by a rabbi in the early 3rd century A.D., there are 39 categories of work. And none of those categories of work could be violated without breaking the Sabbath. We're to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's what Jesus would have known and this man would have known. And the protectors of the institution of Judaism knew. Remember, this is a group of elitists. And they get their sense of power from being the people who control the nation of Israel because they are the power brokers of religious practice and interpretation. And so Jesus really pushes their button here. We read from the book of Mark two episodes where the Jews were opposed to Jesus and were really angry at him because he broke the Sabbath by telling his men to gather grain, and then by healing this man on the Sabbath who had a withered hand. Jesus understood all those traditions of the elders, be sure. He knew all about those traditions. In the 39th category of work was this category. If someone carried an item from one domain to another domain, that man was guilty of having worked and broken the Sabbath. The mat that this man picked up would be probably made of straw, very lightweight, and he would have rolled it up probably, put it on his shoulder, under his arm, as he began to walk away and show the power of God in that miracle. Well, Jesus confronted them. They didn't like it. And Jesus' disdain for this group of Jews is directly related to two things. And Jesus still gets angry at these two things in religious people. One is 
they were all about keeping the Sabbath for showing how holy they were. It was their opportunity to show off just how pious they were. Jesus was not in favor of that because the underpinning of that and the flip side and the second thing is not only Jesus is against what we would call religious activity, legalism, Jesus is also against hypocrisy and pride. And Jesus was angry. It's pretty strong language that Mark uses to describe in chapter 3. He was angry at the reaction of those people who were upset with Him because He had healed a man on the Sabbath. Now, understand that it was okay for a person to render aid to a sick person who was sick to the point of death, whose life was in jeopardy on the Sabbath. You didn't have to wait until sundown on the Sabbath in order that you could go and take care of someone that was about to die. You would not be breaking the Sabbath in that situation. But this man had been sick for 38 years. Therefore, they would have been upset about it. But Jesus responds to them, confronts them. Amazingly, He does this. And the result of that, look at verse 16. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. And the word translated, were persecuting, is a form of a tense in the New Testament, which means they started persecuting Jesus. This was the start-up work that didn't stop until the ultimate act of persecution of Jesus when He was crucified on Calvary. So this stirred them up because the Sabbath was their province. They called the shots. They set the regulations. And they were hypocritical in their own lives in their relationship to God. So, Jesus, the man of mercy, confronts us in our misery. Do you think that's an act of love on the part of Jesus? Definitely. Because He wants us to get well. And we can't get well. And it, by the way, the word well shows up in here in this text about four or five times. And you know what the word literally means? It means whole. Do you want to get whole? Do you want to get whole today? Where is your misery? Is it in a bad relationship? Is it in your body? Is it in your psyche? Where is your misery today? Do you want to get whole today? Jesus wants to make you whole. He wants to fix you up so that you will not be determined and identified by your misery in your life. He wants to give His mercy to you. Well, He comforts this man. This man who doesn't show any expression of faith that I know of. There's no mention of his putting faith in the Lord. That's kind of odd, isn't it? And it's conceivable even that this man really was not converted. We know that all healing by God is not for people who know the Lord. We know that. So let's go back and take a look 
at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Remember, Jesus had slipped away. Right after he healed the man, Jesus slipped away. And this tells us something about the merciful person. A mercy person doesn't want to be in the center of attention. Jesus slipped away. But he finds him the second time. He found him, first of all, at the pool of Bethesda. He was not invited by the man to find him. He went and he singled this man out and found this man. But after he had cured him, and by the way, the words... Was cured, it's used a couple of times in the scripture, means it was a permanent healing. It's not just a healing, it was a cure. And so Jesus goes to find him again. This was in itself an act of mercy, too. He found him in the temple. To the man's credit, he made his way to the temple. He had enough sense to go to the place of worship. And Jesus finds him in the temple. And look what he says to him. Behold, you have become well or whole. Saying, you're safe in your relationship to God now. You're well, you're whole. That's the idea conveyed by that statement. But look at the last part. He doesn't simply say merciful things to him as we would count mercy, but he also confronts him again, doesn't he? He says, stop sinning so that nothing worse may befall you. Now, this raises a philosophical problem for us. Theological, perhaps, would be a better way of saying it. Is all sickness related to sin? This man's was. It was. There was a link between the sickness and sin. We don't know what the sin was. It's good that we don't, probably. But it was something that Jesus warns him again. Don't go back to that lifestyle that you were practicing 38 years ago and maybe have continued to practice since then that resulted in your being sick for 38 years. So the question is, is all sickness related to your sin and my sin in our lives? Let's let Jesus weigh in on this in John chapter 9. Turn to John chapter 9 just a moment. Verses 1 through 3. There are churches in this town which would say, if you are sick, it's because you have sinned. Let's see what the Lord says about that. Verse 1 of chapter 9, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, obviously, the man in question in John 9, his parents had not sinned. They weren't being punished, disciplined, whatever word you might want to use. He had not sinned, but it was for a display of the glory of God. And we'll get to chapter 9, God willing, someday. And we'll see the way in which... Yeah, I know. Go ahead and land. It's true. It's a long, I'm a long time coming. I understand. But... Nevertheless, the Lord is very clear. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 5, that through one man sin entered the world. Who might that man be? Adam. One man, sin entered the world. And through sin, what else entered the world? Death. 
We live in a fallen world. We were born with sinful natures. I believe Romans 5 teaches that too. And we have inherent in this world of fallenness the capacity and the inevitability of dying. We're going to die someday. I'm not trying to be negative or morbid. It's the truth. We're going to die someday. But being in a fallen world creates scenarios where we're exposed to illnesses and we're exposed to recklessness on the part of other people and we get hurt or we get sick and we eventually die. Not necessarily because of sin in our lives. A good place to begin, I don't know if you're familiar with James chapter 5, where it says, If any of you is sick, let him call for the elders to come and anoint you with oil and pray for you. We have elders in our church, and we respond to people who ask us, pastors, elders, will you come and pray over us, anoint us with oil, and pray over us for our healing, pray the prayer of faith. And in the questioning there in James 5, the question is asked about sin. Do you have any sin you need to confess? That whole idea of confession is there too. So it's a little uncomfortable for us, but we do ask people after reading that, is there any unconfessed sin in your life or unrepented sin? Because sometimes our sickness is related. But the majority of sickness, I don't think, is. It's just the fact that we live in a fallen world. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This guy is not a quick study, is he? He's reporting back to headquarters that it was Jesus who did this. And this played right into the hands of Jesus, by the way. Do you know Jesus had a bone to pick with the Jews? This elite group. He was throwing down the gauntlet for the first time here. He was serving notice that he was not afraid of them. And that they were obstacles to mercy. They were contributors to a deeper misery. The greatest misery a human being can have. It's not physical. It's not psychological. It is spiritual. And a lot of our misery, I would say most of mine, has been in the third category, spiritual. And you know, I'm sure, that Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. I have come to heal and cure your spirit. Because when that part of your being where God can live is well, then the possibility of your soul being well is magnified to the nth degree. You will think properly. You will choose properly. You will feel properly. You will be fully human. And Jesus comes to give relief from misery. The worst of which is spiritual misery. Do you know the Lord? Is He asking you today, do you want to get well? At the most basic part of who you are, in your spirit, do you want to get well? Would you bow your head?
If you're saying to Jesus, Lord, I want to get well. I want to move from a position of self-centeredness to a position of Christ-centeredness. I want to follow you, Jesus. Is that what the Lord's calling you to today? To give your life to Him? To accept His grace, His mercy? Are you humble enough to reach out to Him, cry out to Him in your heart and say, Son of David, have mercy on me. Is that your prayer? That's what led to a blind man's being saved and healed. So in your heart, if you sense the Lord is calling you to Himself, just cry out to Him, Jesus, have mercy on me. In your heart, Jesus responds to that kind of cry every time. Lord, we pray that You'd work in our hearts. We would not forget that You are the ultimate man of mercy and You want to deliver us from our misery. Thank You for doing that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.